everyone. Welcome to The Next Level. I'm JVL here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller of The Bulwark. And the three of us are coming to Seattle. We're going to be out there on January 21st taping this show live. If you are in the area, in the area, uh, come out and hang out with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have Dan Savage come out as a special guest buddy. He and Tim will do very blue talk about politics and sex and all sorts of stuff afterwards. And then we'll all hang together and like meet one another and have fellowship. Oh, how I love fellowship and company and being with people. You know, Seattle is like the, I think, maybe biggest city in America I've never really spent time in. I've been there, but I haven't. I, I've not gone to the Pikes Peak Market. I've not gone to the Needle. We could just what? be tourists Pikes Place, together. Not Pikes Peak. Pikes Whatever Peak is it is. Different. Pikes Peak That's in Colorado. Colorado. Springs. That shows you how little I know about Seattle. It's not a swing I'll state. I'll take you to barcades. Seattle is, I believe, the pioneer of the barcade which is an arcade with a bar. I don't want to go to a bar. You don't want to go and play like 1970s era pinball machines while you have a beer. I'm going to provide a list of tourist destinations I would like to go to. And then you guys can go to the barcade when I peel off of the gay bar. Okay, well, I'm sure that there is a gay barcade we can go to. <laughs> We're talking. I don't know. Are there gay video games? Are there specifically like arcade games that are just referred to as super gay? Because I got to say, I always looked at Tempest and thought, eh, it's a little gay. So I'm not familiar with that culture. But yes, not only are there gay video games, there's like a, a specific brand of gay that says that they are a gamer, but they put the Y in gamer and uh, and oh. they have like little communities. Uh, I, I don't have a lot more info that I can provide. Uh, Sebastian, we have one gamer on the production no, we, side we've here. We've got a so gamer go. right here with us. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's going to be great. Go to thebulwark.com slash no BS or click on the thing. It's right there when you hit all of the subscribes and likes for this and all the other things we do. Guys, Ron DeSantis is making his move. He did a big announcement this week about how he is going to take on all of the terrible vaccine people. I will just do this really quickly. He is impaneling a grand jury to investigate the mRNA shots and Big Pharma, capital B, capital P, I guess, for all of the terrible things that they've done in saving lives. He is going to investigate cardiac-related deaths tied to the vaccines. We'll talk about that in a minute because his quack surgeon general Joseph Ladopo has published an anonymous study that he did in which he doesn't reveal any of the important details of his methodology and blah, blah, blah. I'm glad we have you to take us through that with your Johns Hopkins background. Yeah. He's one-eighth a doctor. One-eighth. I'm, I'm one-eighth, basically. I'm as much of a doctor as Joseph Ladopo is. <laughs> and, uh, and he's forming a public health integrity committee to oversee the medical establishment because, as Governor DeSantis says, we've reached the point, sadly, where anything coming from the CDC or NIH or FDA is not worth the paper it's printed on. Thoughts? Because I'm going to be honest, this sort of thing makes me angry. It makes me into an angry Not elf. you. Not you. I have a thought on this, which Please. is that I guess this is the play for DeSantis against Trump, right? The play for DeSantis is Trump was too accommodating of the public health community, made a bunch of bad decisions, shut things down, and Ron DeSantis knew better, and he kept Florida open, and that's why he's America's greatest governor, and that's why he should be president and Donald Trump shouldn't. And he so I guess I literally not- had checkpoints along highways in Florida during COVID. Florida literally set up checkpoints and 
long highways to control access from, you know, people coming from the north who may have not. Yeah, well, so other, <laughs> well, because other governor, like Christy Nome has taken sidelong shots at DeSantis for some of his early day activity. But now he's arguably the biggest branding exercise for him. The reason that he became popular and talked about as a potential presidential candidate is because he was bucking the trends on COVID, because he was bucking the public health community. And so I guess I'm just not that surprised to see him lean into it, although he is doing something that I'm not sure is strategically wise. DeSantis's whole pitch for the National Review crowd is, well, this is our fusion candidate, right? Like, this is a guy who can appeal to normies in a general election. And um, I don't know that becoming, like, a a seriously intense anti-vaxxer is the path to normie town. Oh, no. Could be wrong. No, Tim, you will tell Sarah, right? He's not anti-vax. He is just asking Question. He's just asking questions. Look, he's not prosecuting the the big pharma. He's just impaneling a grand jury. He's not uh, saying that you know that he would disband the CDC. He's simply setting up an oversight panel so we can all have a discussion. The anti antis are all going to look at this okay. and say, "Well, he doesn't really mean any of it." I would ask your just generous discretion to not start another podcast by immediately getting into the meta conversation about how the anti-antis are, <laughs> are processing their support Fair. of Ron DeSantis in the face Fair. of his ob- obvious magonist. So I have a couple other thoughts about Ron DeSantis's move. It's funny when I saw the press conference yesterday because over the past few days from Oakland, I've been having some let's just call them very pleasant conversations with people that work for an organization called Turning Point USA. And that's because I'm trying to, I would like to attend the Turning Point USA conference happening this coming weekend. I think I've gotten there. I think I've finally gotten them to- fire the t-shirt cannon? I I was hoping to. I told them I'd be a good boy. I've been trying to get a credential. You'd think that they don't want to silence people. It's a big part of their messaging over there, Uh, not canceling and silencing people. So- I hope that I've I've got that. I don't have a final final decision yet, but people will know by next week's podcast because I'll I'll give a recap if if I am able to go. But it was interesting to see Ron DeSantis' press conference yesterday because during one of those conversations, I was just having a casual, just kind of temp check with one of the gents about you know kind of the DeSantis Trump thing, and the feedback was that a major animating thing among the Turning Point MAGA crowd is COVID still, and that this is DeSantis's big position. So to Sarah's point, like this is obviously a political and positioning move. So I was interested to see the press conference yesterday because it's very blatant, right? Like it is, it's not even at all subtle, right? Like that this is attempt to get to the other side of Trump, not to care about what the meaningless National Review people think, but to solidify the MAGA crowd, the people that will be at Turning Point USA events, because this is something that they are animated by and the other folks will just, you know, figure out a way to get on board and justify it. And so I think that like from a political standpoint, there's no doubt that is what's happening here. And so, you know, I think that that we can take that as a, as a data point about what Ron DeSantis's plans are from then a strategic point and a public health point, about the merits of this, I'm not sure he needs to do this. Maybe he really believes it. I don't know. Maybe Joseph Ladopo has gotten in his head and like he thinks that he's the one person that sees this thing clearly. I don't know. Things are kind of going DeSantis's way right now. Like why inject into the cycle this like pretty clear anti-vaxxer for how any normal people will process it? You know, the vaccine 
was <laughs> magic. It was life-saving. It changed the whole, our whole society. Thousands upon thousands of people are alive because of the vaccine. The reason why America is doing so well and China is going doing so poorly right now is because China's vaccine is a piece of shit and our vaccine actually worked. It should be a moment of celebration of the free market system, a celebration of American ingenuity. And I think this shows a just horrible judgment I think it will not appeal at all in the general election, but I think it also is a sign of where the party is is going, right? That, like, you could imagine a situation where, you know, maybe somebody took a more libertarian bent, said, ah, Trump listened to Fauci too much, too many lockdowns, but, like, hey, the free market is great, the vaccines are great, America is great, woo, 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 you know, Hulk Hogan riding a velociraptor. That's not what this is. Like, this is populist bullshit. You know, the bulwark, we crushed Donald Trump all day, every day throughout the pandemic, with the exception of Operation Warp Speed, before it produced a vaccine. We ran pieces at thebulwark.com saying that the Operation Warp Speed, the way it was constructed by bringing in people from the industry and not just making it researchers and academics, was well constructed and was likely to lead to a good outcome. You know, there are a handful of things that the Trump administration was basically right on. Banning TikTok is another one, even though they didn't go go through with it. This is one of the few things that he got right. We have a, a yep. study out this week by the Commonwealth Institute suggesting that the vaccines in the U.S. saved a little bit more than three million American lives. Wow, I and was under the idea that Ron DeSantis is going to be out there when this is not. And I'm sorry, I'm filibustering, Sarah. This is not a dead issue. This is a live issue. 450 people are dying from COVID every day. Still, every day. And the vast majority of them are people who have refused to get vaccinated. Okay, so I'm looking at this report from the Scientific American. It says 335. Yeah. I've been looking at the daily death tables, and it's our rolling seven-day average is about 450 to 470, 480. Okay. And okay. These are, these are daily deaths we're talking about. Daily deaths. Yeah. Daily deaths. And it's almost entirely among the unvaccinated population. If you have the the full the full spectrum vaccine with That's the not boosters. Quite right, actually. It's not. Old, it's old, not. old people, old, people. Old, old vaccinated people are also yeah. a big part of that number. Old people, but old people who've been vaccinated and boosted are still a very, very small percentage. Your, your outcomes, your case fatality rate, regardless of age, are much, much lower if you are vaccinated and boosted versus unvaxxed. I just read something about this. Like because so many people are vaccinated, like in raw numbers, you know, there actually is a significant percentage of people who are vaccinated who are dying because so many old people got vaccinated, thank God, and some old you know, some old people. So in raw numbers there still are, but by a percentage, you're you're right, of course. And so this is a this, you know, this is a thing which Ron DeSantis cannot possibly believe. Ron DeSantis' wife had breast cancer. She had to undergo surgery. She underwent long treatments. If Ron DeSantis truly believes that nothing which comes out of the CDC and the NIH and the FDA is, quote, worth the paper is printed on, then what was he basing his medical decisions upon over, you know, he and his wife over her fight with cancer? And thank God she's cancer-free now. She beat cancer, which is great. But this suggests to me that Ron DeSantis does not believe that these things are, are not worth the paper that they're printed on. And that this is like so much else of his administration. It's performative governance, which is terrifying, right? This is the, the, the Stop Woke Act, which was his attempt to, to strike down 
you know, the evil CRT has been basically gutted by the courts, you know, stripping Disney of its Reedy Creek special privileges. That is now being unwound in the Florida legislature and the climb down excuses. Oh, well, now that Bob Chapek is gone and Bob Iger is back as CEO, this was really about the CEO. It wasn't really about the company itself, which is an insane position. All of these things, they're just nobody's going to be indicted by the grand jury in Florida, right? Nobody's going to jail because of this. And it's purely performative and it's disgusting and evil. Too far? Uh, Too much? Well, I guess here's the thing. The CDC does go overboard sometimes. Like, I have been critical of the CDC in the past for lots of their recommendations that are far too conservative and that are, like, you know, around, like, women and drinking or whatever. Like, WHO, a lot of these public health communities, they can they can go too far. And they can make recommendations that, like, sensible people can say, I understand in a perfect world we'd all be eating, like, all these vegetables and, like, we'd never drink and all of this stuff. Right. But, like, when it turns into legislation that impacts people's lives, we should be pretty light on how much we're, like, demanding that people do. This is just my conservative libertarian <laughs> instincts here. Going, but, like, the dental I don't... damn recommendations by <laughs> the CDC go a little too far for you. Uh, they do make... We will not... This is not... Uh, we're not with Dan Savage yet. And when we are, I won't entertain these conversations either. No, but, like, you know, we're not... We don't have, like, mandatory vegetables. Like, vegetables yeah. are good for us. Like, smoking is bad for us. People yeah. and will kill us. And, and I think that DeSantis could lean on the fact that he said, like, we want to keep things open. But going down this rabbit hole on the sort of the anti-vax side to outflank Trump. And I'm sort of surprised he's doing it because I feel like there was a real lesson to be learned from this last election, which is that people are putting a pretty high premium on like normie good governmenting and a pretty low premium on like being a weirdo anti-vaxxer extremist. And so Tim's point I think is correct where he's got to figure out how to separate Trump from his voters, right? And so he's trying to outflank him here I just think it's actually kind of a dangerous play for him. Like, he's wrong on the science of the vaccines are good. Like, the idea of, like, the vaccines are bad as a as a proposition is very silly. I'd put a finer point on your argument. Because there are legitimate criticisms of some of the CDC recommendations, because, like, the FDA, like, there are legitimate, normal, smart, free market, even center-left, like, criticisms of the FDA approval process or even public health uh, criticisms of it, right? The, the, like, to say that they're too conservative, holding things back. For, yeah, you know, we certain criticized medicines. this over booster rollout, remember? There was a yeah, huge con- right. you know, criticism of the, of the FDA over, over the approval of boosters, and it was too slow. Same with the monkeypox vaccine. There were fair right. criticisms that were happening, right? right. That, that they were being too conscious this was approved in Europe, and it's like this thing was spreading very quickly. Like, why not get it under control quicker than they did. They ended up approving it decently quick, but they were fair. Trust. So to the point, though, is that you could do the the soapbox, right? you know, him in Florida campaign of like, oh, these CDC, these elite, like, you know, pencil pushers want to tell us what to do and their recommendations were wrong and they were overly, you know, their mask recommendations like didn't meet what the actual science was. And, I, you know, we, we should have more access to medicines right like there, there are plenty of like legitimate criticisms like so to do this is just 
like wildly irresponsible and madness and it's a specific effort to like reach the Candace Owens crowd. It's like him saying like these legitimate criticisms of Trump's FDA or CDC, I'm going to jump over those and those are kind of implicit and my explicit criticism is going to be how do I get to Candace Owens's voters, right, who are anti-vax and who are unhappy with Trump over the vax. And like that is what's so gross about this really. So let me throw two things at you guys, one with why it will work and one one with why it won't. And the reason it could work is because, again, all of this is phrased in just asking questions. So Lodopo, who you know puts out a statement yesterday as his unbelievably irresponsible study is being picked apart, and he says, I love the discussion that we've stimulated. Isn't it great when we discuss science transparently instead of trying to cancel one another? This fucking guy. Uh, and that's, you know, it's like, ah, my study is junk science. Well, but look at the great conversation we've stimulated, right? And this is what DeSantis will do. I was just asking questions. You know, we don't want to cancel each other just for asking questions. So that's why it could work. But the reason it could not work is because, again, DeSantis doesn't have the courage of his own convictions. He is not doing all of his medicine with ivermectin and pills, right? Like, he he got vaccinated. is why he refused to answer the question about whether or not he was vaccinated. His wife underwent cancer treatment, presumably with the best oncologists and medical teams that, that exist in Florida. And so this is... It is like the Marlboro man not smoking cigarettes because he knows that they're bad for you, but going around, you know, doing the, was, you know, taking a drag with his lariat and posing for pictures and doing the advertising. And don't voters smell that? Or are they such rubes, such idiot bubbas that they can't even understand that they're getting, getting pandered to? That was definitely a question for you, Sarah. Uh, ah. Any question about whether the voters are rubes? Uh, I think uh, you're the you're the go-to. Look, I think that this plays. I mean, and like this is the thing: not all the voters, not all Republican voters, but the folks who are at Turning Point USA, the folks for whom fighting is the highest level prerequisite beyond, you know, any actual policy position. Right. There's a decent chunk of those people who now represent the base of the Republican Party. And that's who he's trying to. But like, look, but this is why I think it's a gamble is because I actually think for a really big chunk of normies, they think the vaccines were good. Although, I mean, I guess the the piece that I would offer as why I'm not sure this is so risky for DeSantis is in retrospect, the public health community doesn't look great. Right. Like everyone was wearing cloth masks for all this time. And like, it's hard to not sort of go back and judge these things and think, well, this was stupid for a year. We were all wearing these cloth masks that offered basically no protection. We we're making kids wear them. The kids keep it being kept out of schools. Like there is going to be story after story after story about the mental health and learning fallout from the kids not being in schools. You know, I just, I think that there's a reason he wants to circle around the I was right about this and the public health community was wrong. And also, you know, it's not – I think a lot of reasonable people can say, look, they said that the vaccine was going to, you know, was going to solve this in a lot of ways. Like, and it, they did get a little oversold in the beginning. Like, it turns out you needed a ton of boosters and then you were still going to get COVID. At the end of the day, it was not going to keep you from getting COVID. It was going to just – it was going to help keep you from dying, especially if you were under the age of 65. Yeah. 
I mean, so I, I guess I'm going to have to disagree on, on just the, on whether I think that that is a working message when it comes to 2020. I mean, again, maybe in the primary, I want to set aside the primary. I think we all agree that this is a good play, just practically speaking, for the primary voter. Yeah. It's going to work. Primary voter cares about this. It's an, it's an easy wedge with Trump. Okay, so let's set that aside. The other element about just this whole like COVID debate in the public sphere and like the narrative around COVID and what was right and what was wrong I think everybody has has real things that we wish we'd have done better. You know, like the perfect, like matched against the perfect, we didn't do great. Matched against China, we're doing pretty good. Matched against letting three million more people die, we do, we're doing pretty good. Matched against Florida, like weirdly having a spike in COVID deaths after the vaccine became available, I think we're doing pretty good compared to that. States where people got vaccinated. So we're in December of 2022. So 20 months from now, in September of 2024, when like some people are getting their COVID fall booster and some people are getting their flu booster, but like that's just our new reality. Is this going to be work, right? Like are people really going to want to be like hear Ron DeSantis in the debates in September of 2024 be like, I was right and Joe Biden was wrong. We shouldn't have masked the kids. We shouldn't have had so many vaccine boosters. I don't know. I think most people are going to be kind of like, dude, I don't, I don't well, no, know. Cause it, this is, well, this will be a test. Of, and I think this is one of the things we really don't know about Ron DeSantis, right, is, is what quality of politician is he? Like, is he good at this? Yeah. And it could be that he's actually, as I suspect, I was just on the Guardian's podcast and they were like, what's your prediction for 2023? Something that you think would surprise people. And I was like, Ron DeSantis, totally going to fall apart. He won't be the main challenger to Trump. And I think part of that is because I think looking at him, I'm not sure that he's particularly good at this. But let's say he was. Let's just take the affirmative case. Ron DeSantis is a relatively good politician. He's not arguing in the general election to normie voters that, you know, he's not talking about like you shouldn't vaccinate people, whatever. What he's saying is he's lamenting the Democrats' entire approach to education, including how they kept our kids out of schools and how – look at the fallout that we're dealing with. And he sounds concerned. He'll say, I have a young family. And watching the mental health struggles of these kids because of the Democrats' overzealous big government policies, we cannot have people like that running our government. Like, that's what he'll do. And, like, for the normies, that'll play a little bit. It played for Youngkin. That's how I think it Didn't really work in the midterms. I think the salience of this is is like by the week – is like, I think this is a high salience issue for Bethany Mandel and like right. the 22 people that moved to Florida, you know, because they were spending too much time reading top conservatives on Twitter. But I just, I, I think this is increasingly a low salience issue for for other people. So I, I, he might he might turn out to come off like a crazy person, a crazy obsessive person about this. But you're right. In theory, sure, it could be one data point, but that's not what he's doing right now. But I don't he's, think it's I don't think it's his whole campaign. Yeah, I, no, I agree with you on the reduced. Like we are living with COVID in a way now that is totally different, and we're assuming that nobody starts like having our kids back out of school, yeah. and there's not like constant remasking policies. Ten percent of society, COVID made them go crazy. And like half of those people like moved to Florida and are still talking about mycocarditis and and the ivermectin like Ron DeSantis and five percent of those people are still weirdly masking in like outside at the park for some reason and but like I don't neither of those I don't think are winning political strategies for the normies but I, I do think probably is working for him with the TPUSA crowd. Let's hope so. So. This leads us into the 2024 perspective polling. We have four polls out over the last week or so. They are DeSantis plus 20, DeSantis plus 14, DeSantis plus 5, and DeSantis plus 2. These polls are very in quality. Head-to-head. Head-to-head with Trump. Trump. And uh, very in quality. 
you look at the polling for the last month and it's literally all over the map. Some of them you'll have Trump plus 36, some you'll have DeSantis plus 20. It is hard for me to get a handle on all this. But what I guess what I was trying to drive at when I asked about the phony stuff was that like Republican voters smelled the phony on Ted Cruz, right? Mm -hmm. They smelled the phony on Marco Rubio. Will they smell that with DeSantis or will they accept him as as authentic in the way that they accepted Trump, right? I mean, Trump was accepted as an authentic, whatever he is, maybe an authentic phony, but like, you know, as being real and authenticity is is the coin of the realm. And so which way does DeSantis break and what do you think about these numbers? The short-term impact of the numbers is I think he's obviously running, right? And I, I don't think that he, this was obvious a month ago, right, that he was going to run. Uh, and maybe that's wrong. Maybe he decided two years ago. But um, I, I think at least there were, there were some doubts uh, about whether or not that it was smart for him to run. And I think clearly if he's winning head-to-head polls and he's trying to outflank Trump on anti-vax bullshit, then like all signs point to him running. So I think that's the short-term impact. Whether he wears well, I don't know. I don't. I guess I would disagree. With that. I don't think that he will totally fall apart in 2023. I think that he can at least spend the first half of the year doing what he knows how to do: stay on Fox, criticize the elite media, like kind of like duck and dive around the craziest Trump stuff. Like eventually, that will you know have to come to a head. And whether he survives that is a totally open question. I would go so far as to say, I'm trying to think back to 2016, I think as strong as anybody has looked ever against Trump in the head-to-head. I, I guess me, there was a brief moment in the fall of 2015 when our campaign was tanking and it looked like Rubio was kind of consolidating and was like going up in the polls, like before the, you know, kind of debates hit where he, you know, got turned into little Marco. So I think that is probably the most akin to this. Like in that moment in the fall, I think you would have thought it's a 50-50 coin flip, probably lean Rubio right now of 2015. And that's probably where we're at on Trump now. So he's about as weak as, as he's ever been in, in one of these situations. Yeah. So I want to tag on to the Trump is right now in this moment, extremely weak. I'm very interested in what the dynamics look like once these indictments come down. Like the January 6th committee is going to do a referral on Trump to DOJ, almost certainly. Georgia, yep. the investigation there is almost certainly going to manifest uh, an indictment. And then the Mar-a-Lago documents that were with the special counsel are also almost certainly going to result in an indictment. And so one of two things can happen. Because I I, want to say that the midterms changed everything. I said DeSantis wasn't going to run. Like I did a whole thread on why I didn't think DeSantis was going to run before the election. And I don't think that anymore because of how weak Trump is, right? And the total diminishment of Trump's strength, both by the complete and total loss and also because of how wobbly the party's gotten now because it is it is so uneven with the MAGA fact. Like, everybody who's in leadership positions is facing challenges. They are going into their new role or this much, much weaker than they would have thought. Rana is much weaker. McCarthy is much weaker. McConnell is much weaker. They are fielding challenges from within their ranks or mm-hmm. with crazier ranks. And so... I just think that with Trump as weak as he is, it's enticing not just Ron DeSantis. I think it's going to entice a lot of people into the field. I think we're going to end up actually with a big crowded field. My big thing is I'm not sure that DeSantis under scrutiny and also now as the front runner, as the perceived front runner out of the gate, everybody's going to attack him, right? And I, or like, I just think the dynamics of the 23, the shadow primary that's going to happen in 23 – 
are super interesting and wildly unpredictable. Maybe everyone's just talking DeSantis and not Trump, and they weirdly line up with Trump because he's being attacked unfairly by the deep state, and it actually helps Trump sort of regain kind of a foothold and some power from which to attack. Or... Trump has done, and I'll tell you, in the focus groups, the polling doesn't surprise me. The focus groups, I've done several since the election. I, I've just been sort of collecting this evidence, but I'll share because I, I don't, I don't want to, just an inside thought here, but I want to segment these groups out better than we're doing. So right now we're just doing Trump 2016, Trump 2020 voters. And I've only found one person who's excited that Trump is running again in 2024. The rest of them are like, eh. and they're excited about DeSantis. Like DeSantis is the number one name. One of the Georgia groups talked about how there's already DeSantis 24 lawn signs in her neighborhood. Like she saw a lawn sign. Mm. And so there's no doubt he is in this position of strength in this moment. But I want to know if I segmented by people who think about Trump very favorably versus people who who think about him just like, okay. Um, right? If I could put like, in a focus group request, Trump yeah. 2016 primary voters. Trump 2016 primary voters. Like, are they still with him or are they migrating away? Like, those are unanswered questions. I don't think there's been, like, these pollings are garbage. Um, Like, they're reflecting, I think, a shift in overall sentiment, which I'm seeing, too, in the focus groups. But I don't think they give us a good sense of what proportion of the MAGA base remains intact for Trump. And I just think that's, like, a key piece of information that we don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that at this point, head-to-head polls with Trump and DeSantis are really Trump or somebody else. Like DeSantis is just the so. stand-in for not Trump, don't you think? I don't no, think I that. don't think that. No, you don't think that? I don't think no, that. No, I think DeSantis has emerged as a the, the Trump without the baggage, the Trump with brains, you know, the person who is like Trump, yeah. but not have all the bad stuff. I right? think a Trump-Pence head-to-head would be Trump plus 50. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's close to that. There is a Trump-Pence <laughs> head-to-head. Yeah. But Pence is, of course, like is an unperson. Yeah, sure. So, right. Uh, you know. <laughs> wait, All right. Uh, wait, can, can I, can I just say one last thing on this point about just 2023? Because I've been thinking a lot about it. I will say, again, on the midterms changed everything. I do think it's an opportunity. You know, people are feeling a little dejected because of all the losing, right? And so there's a this weird moment where I actually think suddenly anything's possible again. I'm going to just be like optimistic Sarah for a little bit. And I'm not saying like Larry Hogan 2024 like remains like a huge thing. But like Chris Sununu, I've seen like him talk about getting in. Now he is an interesting person. He's he's in our kind of anti-Trump vein, although he's played nice with him fine. Uh, and he supported Balduck, uh, I think, horribly as a as a horrible judgment call, but he did. But that guy has an early primary state advantage and in that region quite a lot of name recognition and, like, maybe is quite a good politician. Like, I'm just – I am now in my mode of I think lots of people should run. I think there's specific appetite for DeSantis, but I think it's shallow. And I think that people could move to somebody else, even somebody kind of normie. Because they're sick of losing. And one of the things these focus groups keep saying is like, we got to win. We need somebody who can win. And right now they think that's DeSantis, but that may not hold up. He may be too polarizing. Yeah. Although the Biden head-to-heads were Trump losing to Biden by seven points, DeSantis beating Biden by seven points. I found that very hard to believe. Yeah, I saw that in one of the polls. I, uh, I've i seen other, other things showing it. Basically a coin flip with DeSantis Biden. Um, but it's basically a coin flip if it's Trump Biden. 
anyway. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, we're, we're niggling around the edges. All right, enough of that. The Twitter files, God help us, are still happening. We have a great piece on thebulwark.com today by Kathy Young about this. And Kathy, in her preternaturally even-handed way, tries to see both sides of it and comes away thinking, like, geez, this is, these two things are not like the other. I just want to preface this by saying I have seen a lot of people on the left who are engaging in some revisionist history in which they make the Twitter as it existed 12 months ago into this this lovely golden age, which Elon Musk has ruined. And Twitter has been a, a doomsday machine for American society from the beginning. It was terrible. Under the old regime, it was really it cute right terrible. in the beginning when we just thought it was te- we were telling our little friends where we were, you know. Maybe it was cute when there was a hundred thousand people on it. That very first summer, when I was like, "Hey, I'm at Cloud Nine, everybody, come hang out," and like you know, and it would be like a blurry picture of your one friend making out with a stranger, and their <laughs> other friends could get to see it live. I don't know. That was great for like maybe that eight was weeks. okay. It was like eight week golden era in two thousand seven. But it's been summer. terrible for forever, and everybody should be off of Twitter. And if you are a liberal who needs to tell yourself that Twitter is now uniquely bad in order to get off of it, I'm not going to begrudge you that. <laughs> but you should get off of it anyway, and you should not get onto TikTok. You go go to Post News or go to Reddit or go to Substack. You don't need Twitter in your life. There, I said it. Sarah. Stay on Twitter. Twitter's great. Twitter's fine. I Twitter's need Twitter fine. in my life. I'm addicted and I don't and I don't care. I'm an addict and it's fine. I'm like the oh, I'm like the lady that they interview who's 102 smoking Marlboros on her front porch. The local paper comes to talk to her and they're like, "What's your what's the key to your life success?" She's like, "I knew these things were supposed to kill me, but I've been doing a pack a day ever since I was 18." And that's going to be me with Twitter. I'm going to be doing 12 tweets You're a day. You're already on TikTok. You might as well just go all in with the chai I am on TikTok. I don't care. You can have my data. <sighs> I, I am concerned about the TikTok algorithm. That's another topic. Here's my thing on the latest, since we last spoke of the Twitter files, the, the most recent little batch has been about the Trump takedown, taking Trump off of Twitter. I just, like, once again, I just want to say to the people, to my friend Barry Weiss and, and Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and all these people, uh, we agree. I, we kind of agree. I don't. Not everybody. JVL was for the takedown of Trump off Twitter. I was kind of against. Like I think we had mixed views on the bulwark. It was totally kind of ad hoc and crazy for them to take Trump down, but leave Ayatollah Khomeini up there. Like they didn't have any clear policies. Like agree, agree. What I don't understand is like is the subtext of the PR that these guys are putting out for Elon. Is that like? This was all like a horrible scandal that was that was an attempt to help the Democratic Party, and they were like they violated armed- international law. I mean, there are Geneva Accords written about how the process is supposed to go, and a, <laughs> yeah. a private company can't do anything. I mean, it's not like the process that we have in place now under the new regime for keeping Alex Jones <laughs> off of Twitter, yeah. right? That or is a, a well thought out rigorous process <laughs> which is totally transparent and everybody yeah. like this, or elon jet he just cut up like some guy has a account some guy's account where he yeah. follows elon's jet and like that just got yeah. canceled you know so it's like I, okay like concur like it was they didn't have clear policies but they're a private company they could kind of do what they want i, I think they were flawed humans trying to make judgment calls trump did just and also it's always been a shit show from the beginning 
yeah, Trump did just burn an attack on the Capitol. So it's kind of like, and and here and where we are today, like usually when you have these sorts of things, it's like, oh, okay, well, we're going to review all this so we learn more for the future. Like that's okay. Maybe we need a blue ribbon commission to study this stuff. For the, but like Jack has already said that this was wrong. Jack sold the platform to Elon. <laughs> Elon's running it in his own fucked up way. Like, shouldn't we be investigating Elon? Like, who? Ca- like, what? You know, what What do you guys want? I, I still don't understand what they want. The, they, they, I think they oh, just want to flog the I libs know. in the public square. Attention. Attention, attention. is what yeah, they, they want. want. Attention. Okay. And, so anyway, and that's my Elon's issue money. with it. And when you get close to Elon, because when you get close to Elon, you get money. Okay. This is. But they also, I've told, <sighs> I've talked to JVL about this, but it's also about providing, I think, their audiences with the sense that they were justified to tolerate the last seven years of what's happening with all the Trump stuff because the left is doing these things, right? Like there is this, this is the safe space. Yeah. This is the safe space for people. Um, and, and it's how they want about, it's how they both sides. It's how they create the illusion for themselves that like, well, of course. Yeah. I mean, Trump is bad. I don't like Trump, but like, look at this, look at what the left is doing. Look at what they're doing on Twitter. They're shadow banning people. Look what happened to Charlie Kirk when he was devisibilified, right? Or had his visibility reduced on Twitter. Uh, he just disappeared. He was unable to get his viewpoint across in any forum anywhere in America. And he went out of business. Well, Charlie, I don't know if you're listening, but JVL might be sounding sarcastic then, but I do. I'm not being sarcastic, and I do agree with your plight, and I, I would like to be credentialed for the Turning Point USA Festival this weekend in Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what I here's what really grinds my gears here, is the self-righteousness of the people who are presenting the Twitter files in the most slanted, and like the, the people who are like, oh, just asking questions, good faith, are... The manner in which the entire thing is being conducted is like a parody, and they're all terrible. They still haven't released. I mean, Matt Taibbi in the very first thread said, oh, by the way, also we have evidence that the Trump White House requested things be taken down. But that's the only note of it that we've had still. There there have been like hundreds of tweets across a dozen threads since then by multiple different characters, and they're all like – you know, getting new followers off of this and nobody's followed up on like even that one point. They're not it's, even trying. Like, like you would think that even if it was a PR attempt for Elon, but they were like trying to seem even handed, they might throw a few bones and be like, "Ooh, and here's one thing that we uncovered they did that hurt conservatives. Like I made a joke on Twitter, justice for the Krasensteins. Like where, how have we, have we found the email, internal emails between Yoel Roth about why the liberal Krasenstein brothers were banned for Twitter? Like just throw them in the mix Forget just to kind of pretend. about those guys. What happened to those they guys? Get banned for Twitter. They got actually deplatformed. They live in Miami now. Um, I sent that tweet out as a joke and the <laughs> Krasenstein's wife DM'd me and one of the Krasenstein's brothers messaged me on LinkedIn. Letting me know that they would like to tell me the backstory of how they got deplatformed. And I my point is, I don't care. It was Jack's judgment call. You guys had other things, like whatever. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway. But they're not even trying to do that. It's it's just all it's just total supplication to like the Elon narrative. Yeah, but also here's the thing. So I just think people should care less about Twitter in general. Um, mm. Like I think we should. I like still want to tweet, but I just like all the machinations around Twitter. Like I don't know. Donald Trump was texting with the whole Fox News primetime lineup about the coup, and they were like, I, I just like the the extent to which that presidents 
like Do- like Donald Trump has his own media apparatus, which he totally controlled, and <laughs> and it was like a major cable channel. But I also am just uh, Noah Smith had this thread on Twitter that I thought was. I sort of thought was good-ish in that, or I guess it's a little how I've been thinking about it. Look, Jack was probably more sympathetic to the left when he was running Twitter. Elon is clearly, like, Elon wants it to be a platform that right-wingers use, right? Um, Get her. Right? Yeah, no, he wants it to be. And so, like, he's in charge now, and he's going to make it a place in which conservatives are more likely to thrive than they were under the previous regime. And it's up to us. I, I don't know if you read Pope Hat, you know, left Twitter, which I'm super disappointed about because I liked his tweets and I thought he was great. good. It's good for America oh, oh, that Ken oh, White has great. left no, no, Twitter. No, he's, yes. okay. So I, I love sad. Ken White. I'm saying yeah, I'm I, sad I, he I left. Think Ken is great. And look, he can. And that's what people will do. Like either an alternative will spring up in the face of Elon's what is just like an incredibly unbelievable mismanagement of this product. And like people will leave and start a competitor that is for journalists that and others where people feel like they're on a responsible platform. Either that'll happen or people will stay it's on amazing. Twitter and they will accept like Elon Musk's like insane MAGA regime. But like it is his and like this is what's happening. One final thought for me on this is concerning and I, I put it in the newsletter. And here is where I get really worried is I don't know. Did you see Tucker last night, Sarah? The newsletter came, is, came out as we were speaking. So I wouldn't expect that you would have read it, though. I would expect you would have read it had you had the chance because you read my material unlike some other materials but um i guess newsletters are i know key reading for you but uh tucker last night he did a long kind of russia conspiracy rant about all the unknown things we don't know about like like who really did the Nord stream pipeline damage and you know who really hacked the dnc and all this and he's like well you know who probably might know now is Elon Musk, because a lot of the people who are involved in these things DM each other on Twitter. And now we have the largest trove of important data ever in the history of man in the hands of one private person, Elon Musk. And I would like for Elon to start releasing some of that information. So like Tucker very explicitly called for Elon to leak people's private DMs including journalist source DMs. I don't think that he'll do that because I think that would be an extinction-level event for the site, probably. But anyway, I think that, I hope he does do it. Well, I generally concur with you and Noah and Tom's views of how to handle Twitter and how to care about it versus Pope Hats. I do think that potentially we could have some pretty red-liney type behavior in front of us. I hope he does do it because anybody who is conducting sensitive stuff over Twitter DM in the assumption that this for-profit company would protect their privacy for forever was basically playing with matches from the beginning. You don't Gmail any sen- you don't send any sensitive messages over your Gmail? Fuck no. Okay. Well, Gmail is not end-to-end encrypted. You're a very strange person then. Um no, this is why people use WhatsApp or Signal, right? They do end-to-end encryption for a reason. Elon Musk, once upon a time, tweeted out, use Signal, and everybody got onto it. Remember this? Yeah. Uh, you know, like these things are dangerous, and anything that gets people off of Twitter is good. Because here's the, the truth about this. I am all for the accountability of the decisions that Twitter made to make America worse which is, you know, pushing people together and creating a mechanism in the user experience which specifically rewarded combat. And which is part of what has torn us apart and made everybody crazy and made us think that Twitter is real life. All those things are terrible and are much worse than, oh, you know, they took away Donald Trump's Twitter account. 
that's small potatoes compared to all the horrible things that Twitter unleashed on the world. Kill it with fire. Okay. We have the passing of the, let me get this right, the Protect Marriage Act earlier this week. Correct? I thought it was called the Respect for Marriage Act. These oh, the Respect for Marriage Act. The respect, respect for Marriage Act, which was essentially a repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act. Yep. Because the way we name legislation is totally Orwellian. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Tim, you wrote a little bit about this. Would you like to say something? Yeah, so people can just read it. But I thought, to me, the most interesting element of all this is I was reading my friend Sasha Isenberg's book, The Engagement, about uh, kind of how the fight for gay marriage happened. And there was a section that I didn't know, which is that when Bill Clinton signed DOMA in 96, he did it at 12.50 a.m. He was still in his leather jacket and cowboy boots from a West Coast campaign trip. Took Air Force One back to D.C., signed it in the middle of the night, no cameras. You can't like go into the White House archives and find a picture of Bill Clinton signing the Defense of Marriage Act. So he did it in secret as a kind of a sign of his own White House staff, which included many gay people's like shame over the fact that they were doing this. That bill like passed 85-14 in the Senate, so even more overwhelmingly than this bill did. So I just thought about, I was watching yesterday's event, first on TV uh, and then on every single homosexual in Washington's Instagram feed uh, who all, you know, gave me the same picture of themselves, um, which is God bless them. God bless those gays. They deserve that picture. They worked for it. So I got to see many pictures of it. And I, I, I find that, like, contrast to have been particularly poignant and interesting. You know, this was pretty much a procedural legal move, right? Like, nobody's marriages were really in threat in the short term. Like, it was, a, it was a protection of a hypothetical future threat. And so, to me, like, the most interesting thing about yesterday was just that, like, our cultural victory over the closet and over the fuckers who wanted to, like, make us feel ashamed about our marriages and the fact that, like, Bill Clinton had to, like, sign this thing furtively, you know, away from eyes because he knew it was bad, even though he had an even bigger bipartisan majority. And Joe Biden, meanwhile, got to like do it like next to a gay secretary of transportation and next to a VP who like bucked Proposition 8 when she was attorney general of California. And, you know, next to like, I don't know, 2,500 of my gay Instagram friends. Like that was nice. I thought that was the meaningful part for me of yesterday. And so I appreciated that and enjoyed it. Sarah, 71% of the country is in favor of same-sex marriage. Only 12 Republican senators voted for this. Of them, most of them are either retiring or they're the people who are on outs with the party, like Romney and Murkowski. And there are still, like, the Heritage Foundation is still against same-sex marriage and puts out reports about how support for it is actually quite shallow and people want to get rid of it. What does the Republican Party do with this? Because presumably some large chunk of their voters are in favor of same-sex marriage and some large chunk of their voters are not. Are they going to litigate this or just hope that it goes away? They are not going to litigate this. No Surrey Bob. I've talked about this before, but I want to – I'm going to say it a lot, which is one of the things we're watching happen in the Republican Party. That's interesting, the 29% – of the people who don't support it, it actually sounds about like the 30% of like super committed hardcore, right, MAGAs, right? Even yeah. though Trump was sort of culturally moderate, like there's just this faction and it is the faction that is murdering the Republican Party. 
this just happened, right? So part of the story of 2022 is that the base Republican voter, which is MAGA, but is also just sort of extreme overall. Um, they are extreme on on abortion. They're extreme anti-gay marriage, right? This is who Doug Mastriano was talking to. They're kind of big enough to control a lot of Republican primaries, right? And and that's why Trump got his people in these swing states. But the gap between those people and the normies who vote in general elections is getting bigger and bigger for Republicans. It is why they're desperate for the fusion candidates. And it's why I think Ron DeSantis is playing a little bit of a dangerous game because these normies just told us in 2022 that they do not like this extreme faction of the Republican Party and they will reject it even when all the other factors are telling them they'd like to vote for a Republican. And so that gap has become to me one of the most fascinating elements of the Republican Party. And so on the marriage issue, look, there's a reason they went and did it in lame duck. And it's because nobody wanted to do this publicly and have a big public fight about it. I bet there's actually more Republican senators who are for it, but who were just like, all right, they got their 10. Like, I don't need to go fight this because it's it's primary bait is what it is, right? It is it is a thing that you can get hit on in a Republican primary, but like a perfectly good and safe place to be in a general. Same with being very accommodating on the issue of choice, right? Like you sort of need to be like, yeah, I'm pro-life, but like we need all these exceptions and all this other stuff, like good place for the general, but you might go harder in the primary. The problem is, is that made you unelectable in a general election for a bunch of these people. That reminds me of, uh, it made me think of Jeremy Corbyn and labor. We need a limey to write about how labor went through what the Republican Party is doing right now. Like that same description of what is happening with the MAGA faction. Well, but Sarah, so you're talking about the normies not showing up for MAGAs. But what about the obverse of this? I mean, how committed are the people who are against same-sex marriage and who want abortion outlawed from, you know, conception? Are they going to show up to vote for a normie candidate who isn't willing to take on those fights for them? And maybe the answer is yes, they just will. I mean, they're not going to switch over. That was Donald Trump. They won't cross over. That was Donald Trump, right? Like Donald Trump was a secular, thrice married, not particularly concerned with gay marriage. Everyone knew probably paid for abortions kind of guy. And they voted for him because he had other assets to them. That's DeWine. They voted for DeWine. They showed up for DeWine in Ohio. Yeah. No, I guess that's 20 points more than they did for J.D. Vance. Yeah. Your cheap dates. Um, speaking of uh, looking at numbers, uh, before we leave, nobody's uh, commented on my zippy, my zip up. This is a uh, it's a collector's item. So I did not know that uh, Project Orca manufactured their own brand of wear. That's oh, amazing. Did. Yeah. Uh, is that it's a like, fleece? A tech uh, yeah, vest? it's a fleece. What? It's a fleece quarter zip Project Orca. Um, this is a political collector's item. There was only. I don't know. I think probably a couple dozen made. I did not get one because I was not on Team Project Orca. But um, after Orca beached uh, in 2012 very dramatically when it didn't work and the Romney campaign didn't have any data on Election Day. <laughs> that's what, for people who don't know, that's what Project Orca was. It's like called their big data team. We had no data on Election Day. And so after that... I don't I was, know what you're I, talking I, about. You don't know this story? No. Okay, just so the shortest. So in 2012, the Romney campaign had something called Project Orca. It was supposed to be the big data response to the Obama 
political nerd. In 2008, there were all these articles. I'm going to mention Sasha Eisenberg again, his other book, The Victory Lab, about the Obama data nerds. And so the Republicans were like, we need our own data nerds. And so we hired some people from Silicon Valley, and it created a little project. It was secretive. It's called Project Orca. It wasn't even revealed till like a month before the election. And then there was like all these interviews around it. We're like, oh, you guys didn't know. We've been working on this in secret. The Republicans are coming back to get them. And then on election day in Boston, Project Orca like overheated, <laughs> and so the the data, that was, the data that was supposed to be Total going fail. in, the whole point was that like at three o'clock we were going to know which precincts we need to get more people out at because all this data was going to come in via Project Orca, and then at three o'clock we we're going to send everybody to the target areas to juice the vote by the one percent that Mitt Romney needed. That was the theory behind it. And so the people that were on the secret team got the got this one of these very nice fleece zip ups, and for years I wanted one. Occasionally I'd see someone wear one at a Republican Party. I knew that they existed. It was like my personal holy grail to get one. And finally, as part of a deal with a friend of mine, I made a trade. I made a trade of of goods, not services. <laughs> and and before she moved, uh, she she gifted me the Project Orca zippy, which is one of my prized possessions now. What did you give up? Did you give up a piece of political it's, memorabilia? No, uh, no, it's private. So it was a private exchange oh, between okay. two close so friends. Not, okay. So I was just wondering if you gave up some amazing piece no, of memorabilia no, yourself. No, I didn't. Okay. I got to tell you, when I saw you wearing that when we got on, I was like, I didn't know Tim was like so into saving the whales. <laughs> like, I didn't know. <laughs> the world thing. I thought it was like a charity. <laughs> yeah. That I, Even when you started explaining it, we were like when the orca beached, I was like, when did this happen that they couldn't get the orca back <laughs> in the ocean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, 2012. That's memories. He's been whale watching. Uh, All right. Okay, if we're just, hold on, if we're just talking about things here, can we just go back to gay marriage for one second? Yeah, um, sure. Because just to Tim's point, I, I think Short it's show. Just, so we got plenty of time. <laughs> it's an incredibly the, long show, but go ahead. Well, Tim's talking about all his like uh, lefty homo Instagram friends. I don't and think I you gotta, can say that. Yeah, why can. do you always try to police the language Tim and I use for our own community? Thank you. Tim and I, I just, are allowed to. They're, they're not your community. You were forever telling me that gay men and lesbians are different communities. No, we're, uh, yes, but broadly yes. speaking. We're rivals within the same community. Yeah. It's a yeah. Key, key fact. I am not responsible for what these people are saying on this show. <laughs> Go ahead. I guarantee you, if we were talking, like, nobody would be, if, whatever. I'm not, I can't get into this yeah. with you. The point is. So I used to be the head of the log cabin Republicans, the gay Republican group, the LGBT Republican group. Not invited? Well, no, I don't think I was invited. If I I missed the invitation where I but this is not about it's not about a personal invitation. The reason that 71% of all people believe in gay marriage is there was an enormous concerted effort in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. Like by the time I hit politics, like we were focused on don't ask, don't tell repeal. We were basically trying to undo all of the things the Clinton administration had put in at a time when he needed to do it to sort of signal culturally that he was for swing voters. And so, you know, we were working on on repealing of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But like marriage was just like a glimmer in the eye. Like it like Rick Santorum was a big political figure, was making his bones all on gay marriage and a whole bunch of groups, a bunch of conservative groups and a bunch of conservative and Republican gay people like worked really hard to win over that faction of Republican voters. And as disappointed as I have been in the Trump years uh, around some of the, in the log cabin, my old group that I, that I like very much, as disappointed as I've been, like 
a lot of those people did tons of work that I think isn't quite getting recognized in this moment. Like well, Cynthia Loomis from Wyoming, very culturally conservative, voted for this bill. And part of it is that she said she felt like it struck a good balance between the religious liberties and the respect for marriage for gay people. And I think that there have been a ton of groups doing really hard negotiations behind the scenes for decades around finding that right cultural balance. So I just think they should get, I'm just going to give them a shout out. Yeah. Shelly Morcapito. I'd like to shout out Shelly Morcapito too, who voted yep. for it. West Virginia, not an easy vote there. I will tell you, I'm sorry you didn't get an invite. You deserved one, and you, you should have. One? And, Did you get uh, one? No. Uh, I'm not, we're not going to talk about that. And if yeah. uh, if you're listening, <laughs> I know we have White House friends who listen to this. Uh, please, can you just kind of nudge the social secretary? I, I think that your snub, I just want to give you a little insight, was more about le your lesbianness than about your Republicanness, because the social secretary is a gay, and I was just just monitoring my feed. Uh, if I was if I was looking at who the there were some high impact lesbians and and transgender folks there, you know, people who are at HRC, things of this nature. Uh, but all of the low impact, like, whoo, how'd they get an invite? You know, all happen to be vaguely handsome gay men. So I'm not, mm. not impugning the social secretary, but I'm just saying maybe some of our friends at the White House, you can kind of let them know at the next gay holiday uh, at the White House, maybe you could get included. Um, I will say Joe Biden did mention, because Joe Biden is fucking good at this, uh, he did mention Republicans explicitly. Though I was kind of surprised. Maybe they were there and I just didn't see it, but I did not see you know, like Tom Tillis or whoever was the Republican co-sponsor. I didn't see any of them there. All right. Good show. Long show. Uh, come and hang out with us January 21 at Seattle. It's going to be amazing. Go to thebulwark.com, sign up for all the newsletters, read the great pieces we've got, listen to the podcasts. Bye. Peace. Bye.